Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes. Welcome to episode 93 of the Headspace and Timing podcast. Today's guest is Christy Kaufman, a former military spouse, advocate for veteran military family health and wellness, and the CEO and co-founder of the Code of Support Foundation. Yeah, I mean, we really do look at quality of life in a very holistic way, right? And so if you're really trying to improve a person's quality of life, you have to address these different parts of their life, right? I mean, you just it's not just mental health. Like I said, if you're a mental health provider, you can be giving someone the best mental health ever, but if they have no car to get to their job, they're not going to have any money, and then their mental health is going to suck. Right? <laughs> like it's just everything is inter interconnected. Welcome to the Headspace and Timing Podcast, a show dedicated to breaking down the stereotypes around veteran mental health. My name is Dwayne France, and I'm a retired Army non-commissioned officer and a combat veteran of both Iraq and Afghanistan. After retiring from the Army, I took on a new mission as a clinical mental health counselor for my fellow service members. If you served in any branch of the military, then you're familiar with the M2 machine gun, the 50 cal. It's one of the most effective weapons in the military's arsenal. If the weapon's headspace and timing wasn't set correctly, however, it was just a useless chunk of metal. Veterans can be rendered inoperable if their headspace and timing's not set correctly either. That's my goal with this show, to change the way that we think and talk about veteran mental health and reduce the stigma against seeking support. Each week, we'll talk with mental health professionals, veterans, and those who support service members, veterans, and their families. We're going to have real and honest conversations about a topic that most just don't like to talk about, veteran mental health. Let's jump into this week's conversation. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Headspace and Timing Podcast. Once again, and as always, I sincerely appreciate you taking your time to listen and learn more about mental health and wellness um, as you know, we have many guests uh, come on the show to talk about mental health, uh, and uh, in, in sometimes we have service members, sometimes we have mental health professionals, and often we have military spouses, and we have organizations that are looking to support veterans, not just in the mental health space, but just in general, uh, and that's where we're at today, is uh, talking to uh, Christina Kaufman with the Code of Support Foundation. Uh, so, uh, Christina, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. I, um, I, I think I put a call out uh, not too long ago looking for some uh, guests on the show and several of uh, our mutual uh, connections, of, of which we find we have several, um, suggested that I reach out to you. Um, I, had, uh, I, I think I had communicated several months ago uh, sometime last year with my organization, the Family Care Center, um, talking to Code of Support, 
but then really looking into what you're doing and, and what you have been doing surrounding mental health and wellness and how the CODA Support Foundation uh, sort of uh, gets involved with that. But before we start to talk about CODA Support, I'd like to give you an opportunity to tell the audience about yourself and your background and sort of how you got into this. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I, I probably am a relatively unlikely army wife. I grew up in New Rochelle, New York, um, kind of city type of uh, living. And then I went to school out in California. I was a gymnast and I got a scholarship to Berkeley. And so, you know, not many people who have a, a Berkeley um, background end up anywhere near the military. <laughs> and, uh, and so I was, um, I had a personal training business that I started out there after college. And then I was sitting in my apartment one night and it was when they first came out with those commercials, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. I'm like, Oh my gosh, I'm not, I'm 29. I've never been to Vegas. I'm going. So I canceled all my clients for the next day and I went to Vegas. And on the second night I met my uh, husband, my former husband um, at, uh, at the Mandalay Bay hotel. And he was, even though he's army, he was stationed at Ellis air force base doing his joint time. And so we met a year later, we got engaged, and a year after that, we got married. And it just so happened that I got married June uh, 2001, so right before everything went down. Um, and I went from Berkeley, California, to Lawton, Oklahoma, which I always say was a shock for me and for Oklahoma. I don't think they ever got over it either. <laughs> uh, and so here I was, this kind of New York, Berkeley girl, um, now in the middle of the country, and uh, and an Army wife, and then the war started. and. I quickly realized the way the Army was going about family support and mental health was, in my opinion, inadequate and antiquated. And being the Berkeley girl that I am, tried to change the entire system. Turns out they love when wives do that. Uh, and uh, and by that point, he um, he was doing his battalion command at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. And it, it was from 06 to 08 during the surge. And it, it was just a mess, to be honest with you. I mean, we, we at that point, most of us were on our third or fourth deployments. Um, and these family readiness groups that they had to kind of supposedly take care of the families, it was never a great model to begin with. You have a bunch of volunteer wives who may or may not want to actually do it, don't really have any training, uh, particularly around mental health, uh, you know, to, to take care. I was supposed to, just because I was married to this guy, the battalion commander, I was supposed to apparently um, want to and be capable of, of dealing with, with everything that comes with repeated deployments. And in our battalion, we were sending, we were rotating batteries, right? So we had all at once a battery that was there, a battery that had just come back, and a battery that was about to go. And so all of that in one battalion um, and, and what the impact that that had, not just on the soldiers, but the families as well. And so, I mean, I tried all the ways they had for wives to address issues, um, steering committees and town hall and AFAP, um, and, but I wasn't really talking about quote-unquote wife issues. I was talking about readiness and retention and mental health, and there wasn't really any good avenue for me to, you know, to to do this, and I tried to push it up the chain of command in the different ways they have, but, you know, things get stuck, um, and I think people, you know, particularly at the time, the whole we can take care of it ourselves mantra, I think was pretty strong. And, um, and so I was just basically getting Reese, my ex-husband in, in trouble for things I was saying in, in closed meetings. And when we were asked for our feedback, which I never understood, why are you asking me if you don't actually want to know? Uh, and so 
I guess it was in 07 when um, General Casey came down. Uh, he had just been made chief of staff, and we got called to the auditorium, brigade commanders, battalion commanders, sergeant majors, and their wives to kind of listen to his 10-point plan on, you know, what the, the, the direction the Army was headed. And then, you know, we had 45 minutes where he asked us, what is going on? You know, tell tell me what's going on on the ground and, and that type of thing. And, you know, when you're at those things, you have someone who's very influential, and then people stand up and start really asking the dumbest questions or just some things that are so low down. And, and so, and I remember turning around and there was a couple of generals wise behind me um, who, you know, we all talked about this stuff. And, and I said, are you guys going to say something here? Because it's going to come better from you than it's going to come from me. I mean, I'm just a Lieutenant Colonel's wife. And they're like, no, no, we're not. So I looked at my husband, who was actually home at that point, And he was like, do what you have to do. And I stood up and I said, sir, I want to make this really clear. This is not a 327 problem. It's not the 18 fires problem. It's not a brag problem. It's an army problem, which is why I'm talking to you about it. These family readiness groups were never meant to do what they have been tasked to do, and they are broken. And I said, we were just voted the best family readiness group on this post, and let's, let me tell you what's going on in our battalion, right? And I just, I was honest. I was like, we have wives that are threatening to um, kill themselves. We've got we've got kids that need mental health and that we can't get the mental health. And uh, so, you know, I was just very honest about it. And then um, and then to his credit, you know, General Casey was like, understand that, you know, it's it's very different. A first deployment is different than a third or fourth deployment. And then, you know, he talked about these family readiness support assistance that they are now putting down at the battalion level. Remember, this is 07. So that was a new thing. And apparently this is when I, quote unquote, crossed the line. I popped back up and I said, sir, that's a step in the right direction, but a GS6 admin is not going to do it. And that's what that position was. I knew exactly what that was. We needed social workers. We needed mental health embedded in the units. All the stuff that started to happen later, um, you know, it was just, it wasn't happening uh, when we, we, we needed it. And so I actually got a standing ovation. I thought, oh, wow, that went well. And then we're driving home and Reese's phone starts to ring. And boy, he just got called to the carpet um, by his boss, and you know, it, it was it was really uh, disappointing. Um, I mean, verbatim, get control over your wife. Uh, and so, as if we so could, very, right? Yeah. <laughs> my wife and I just celebrated 20 years, and and uh, all 20 of those years until I retired in 14 was in the military. As as if we could, but well, and and I mean, not for nothing, but I'm right. Right. right? And, no. and, and there's and there's and there's no there, there's you know, I think, again, this suck it up and drive on attitude that we have in the military, which is fantastic and works really well when you have to get through things. You know, so I understand that mentality. And, you know, we did lots of putting our head down and pushing through through extraordinarily difficult, difficult circumstances, you know, during these these really high op tempo years. But, you know, at some point everybody breaks. And we were seeing that happen. We were seeing the cracks turn into breaks and there was nothing I could do about it. I did not have the resources. I did not, I, I couldn't do it, you know, and I felt terrible about that, you know, even though I was in this position only because of the way the army had set it up, not because of any kind of education I had or any necessary interest I had in doing it. 
um, it, there was an expectation that you will step into that role. And it wasn't like I had a problem stepping into that role because I knew that if I didn't do it, it wouldn't have gotten done. There was no backup plan. There, it was just the spouses. That's it. If, if the spouses weren't involved, there was no support system. All right. So that was my point. That's not that's not a, a good model in order to take care of these really significant, you know, mental health and social issues that we were seeing. So in any case, um, you know, we had a year left of his command and just kind of put my head down, did what I could do for our battalion. Uh, and then we moved up here um, in the summer of 08. And I'm actually a pretty happy chick by nature. And I'm walking around all pissed off. And it was because I had done everything I could for those two years and it wasn't even a drop in the bucket because the system was broken. And then when we tried to inform the system, we just got our butts handed to us. And then I remembered I could write pretty well. And so I ended up writing this op-ed that was published in the Washington Post in 2009 called Army Families Under Fire. And it was it's a good op-ed. Uh, and, it, you know, it was pretty solution-oriented. This is what's going on. This is why. And I hear three things I think we can do about it. But I think the timing of it, that the Obamas were just kind of coming into office. They particularly Mrs. Obama had run on this, um, you know, military veteran family campaign platform was one of their platforms. And, uh, and I think they were doing, working on the NDA. So it was 2009 during the thick of the war. So I think the fact that a wife had gone outside the lines, it was the first time that had happened so publicly. So that, I think that's why it made such an impact. I mean, like the third or fourth email in my, in my email box was from the White House, Secretary Gates, um, it was, it made quite an impact. I didn't know actually how big a deal it was to be published in the Washington Post until after it happened. And I just got bombarded with emails. And you can imagine my, my, I mean, my husband was up for his 06 board when it published. So it was a very serious conversation that we had um, before, before I decided to do it. Uh, now he never would have told me don't do it. I'm sure he would have preferred if I didn't. Um, but it was one of those things where I thought to myself, God, if I don't say something, I'm going to regret it for the rest of my life. Uh, because I have, I have the ability to, to bring forth and speak for people who just are never going to have the platform and the voice. Um, and so that's really what, what drove me to do it. And also, you know, you know, we actually talked about, I think, when I was advocating kind of internally, um, we were getting a lot more blowback. I think once it's out there publicly, blowback's a little harder to, to do, right? I mean, you know, obviously if, if I'm not, if I'm not hesitating to write an op-ed in the Washington Post, if I feel like my, my husband's career has been negatively affected because of what I've said, I'm probably not going to be shy about saying that either. Uh, so I think actually going public gave us a little bit more of a of protection and cover. And he, sure enough, he made Colonel. Uh, I did say, you know, I'm not sure. I think you'll make Colonel, but if you want to be a general, I think that this might come around and bite you, bite you in the butt. And he's like, I don't, he's like, I'm not doing that. And so it worked out fine. No, uh, hearing all that, seeing from when you came in in 2001, as, as I assume, um, a, a young officer's wife, um, and seeing how, how it was uh, from the beginning and how it transitioned into the problem is here, but we're not addressing it until the point in 2009 where everything kind of came around um, and, and everything happened at the right time to really start making some changes. Uh, my family and I uh, came here to Fort Carson in 2006. So I was on one of the surge deployments for the 15 months. Um, my unit was uh, it was the unit that went from Korea 
um, to Ramadi, Iraq, to Fort Carson, to Baghdad, then to it. And, and so it was among a lot of the light infantry, um, brigades, uh, had, you know, gone to a lot of the, the, um, the, the hottest spots, uh, there in Baghdad and RC East Afghanistan. And I'm thinking of the timeline. The same thing was happening here at Fort Carson. Uh, Mark and Carol Graham, uh, who are uh, huge advocates of um, of of mental health, with both of their sons, um, uh, Kevin and Jeff. Um, uh, alternatively, one losing their life to, to suicide, one losing their life to uh, a roadside bomb. Um, but at that same time, Mark and Carol Graham were starting to bang the gong. And here in Colorado Springs, the the city was on fire because we were starting to experience. Um, the, the impact of multiple deployments, both on the service members, uh, and the families. Um, and that was happening about the same time where you're starting to bang the gong. And so they're seeing it happen. They're hearing it, hearing it from battalion commander's wife, uh, in, um, in Fort Bragg. They're seeing it at Fort Carson. They're seeing it at Fort Hood. Um, you know, later on, what happens at Fort Lewis and all of these different things. I mean, not just where there's smoke, there's fire, but when there's multiple columns of smoke, there's likely the same fire going on across the services. And that's just the army that you and I experience, much less the Marines and, and the multiple rapid deployments with, uh, with the Air Force. Um, I, I can see my personal experience overlapping in the same timeline that yours did. Yeah, I think a lot of people, and, and we were actually, I was, we were stationed with Mark and Carol the Grahams, um, at, at SIL before Reese's Battalion Command, um, when they lost their, actually, both their sons, I guess. Yeah, because they were there. Yeah. Um, and they've been incredible uh, advocates, um, you know, over the years. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I certainly was not the only one who was who was out there uh, making noise about this. Um, I think that I think that the Washington Post, the exposure to the Washington Post, and the fact that I was a wife, right? I mean, it's just it's just not done. Right? <laughs> I mean, I remember like the emails that I got in response. I mean, I had over a thousand emails within a week, and ninety five percent of them were were encouraging and 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 basically the theme of thanks for for taking the risk and having the courage to to say something about this. And and the ones that that um, that were not so much negative, no one really disagreed with what I said. There were people, particularly senior spouses that are retired or older, you know, older veterans or whatever, um, that said, "Look, you know, you're not wrong, but you shouldn't have said it in the Washington Post, right? You know, just basically, you know, we 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 should have these conversations in house and." You know, it's funny because I responded to everybody who wasn't crazy. I got a couple of crazy emails, but like I and I said, look, we stand on the shoulders of those who have served before us. And the only reason I had this platform is because people like you have, you know, have advocated before me. So I really appreciate that. But my, you know, my whole comeback to all that is like, how's that working for us? Exactly. I mean, it's <laughs> how's it, working? The, it, it wasn't working to the point in, in just uh, burying our head in the sand um, and, and thinking, like you said before, the suck it up and drive on works very well until you do it repetitively for a very long time because right. you can only suck up so much and drive on so long uh, before things start to crack. And 
And I, as I wasn't a mental health professional in the military, and so I experienced it. I mean, heck, even before that, my father, uh, three of my uncles were Vietnam veterans. And so I grew up seeing what the impact, um, variously from all of them in, in different ways, uh, what the impact of combat was. And then I joined my younger brother also, um, is a combat veteran of both Iraq and Afghanistan. And so I saw it as a military family member. We weren't in the military as I was growing up, but I saw the aftermath. Uh, and then I saw it as a service member. And then I saw it in, in my, um, in my spouse and my children. My, uh, four of my five deployments was, was with my wife. My first was, um, uh, in the mid nineties before we met. Uh, but my children had just started elementary school when I started to deploy and they were going into high school when I stopped. And, and that's an impact on the family, um, because veteran mental health impacts the family and the family impacts veteran mental health, not just during the deployments, but long after. Yep. Totally agree. And so that, um, the, the op-ed in, uh, the Washington Post, that's really how the CODA Support Foundation started. Yeah, that's what really gave me the platform. So what I realized as I was then getting invited to these really high-level meetings, I remember the first meeting I got invited to at the White House, it was kind of the the, the very beginning of joining forces uh, and, you know, with, the, with all the organizations. And so I remember there was this U-shaped table uh, and um, Mrs. Obama was at the, the head of the table and then they had all these organizations like the Fisher House and Red Cross and all the um, the big six and so people they had these little placards with people's names and their titles and I was just like Christy you know because I had literally no affiliation whatsoever and I was the only one in the room that didn't I mean I, the only reason I was there is because Mrs. Obama and the president had written the op-ed and they wanted me I had read the op-ed and they wanted me there uh, and so I'm sitting there listening and, you know, I have not been working at the strategic level at all. This is not even a year after his, um, after we left his command. And so I'm listening to all this incredible work that these people are doing, uh, and just like, wow, this sounds really good. And then, um, I hadn't really said anything and Mrs. Obama, she's like, what about you? And I said, look, um, I am not with an organization and, you know, I recently came out of this experience with my husband's command and what you guys are, are talking about, all these nonprofits sound fantastic, but I've never heard of three quarters of you. <laughs> I said, it doesn't matter how great your programs are if we don't know they exist. Right. You know, and, and, and that's not, you know, I'm not blaming the nonprofits. It's, it's that, you know, the, at that time, um, especially the Army was actively uh, discouraging us from going outside the gates, right? Uh, I remember talking to some three-star from MCOM and him telling me that we don't, make, want, he, we don't want to make it look like we can't take care of our own. And, you know, I looked at him. I said, well, what are we, not Americans, first of all? And second of all, dude, cat's out of the bag. Like, suicide numbers, all this stuff is happening we cannot take care of our quote unquote own. And so, um, and so that was, you know, that was kind of the government and that's changed. I think that, that, that um, both the DOD and the VA from the leadership level over the past um, five or six years has really made an effort to be more open to partnerships. And, you know, there's lots of things that prohibit or inhibit those partnerships and that need to be looked at policy-wise and what have you. But at that point, it was just very much a um, a cultural thing. 
And so I and I said to Mrs. Obama, I, I said, you know, if if you're asking me, I said we need some kind of what's going to happen in the next what's what's our what's our win in the next 90 days? Like, what can this administration do that families can really you know see you know, what's you know, see the difference and. And then I pretty much shut up because I was so low down on the totem pole and <laughs> didn't really have any kind of strategic thing to add. But I think that was an important thing that I said, which is, look, you know, it just none of this matters if if we can't access it or we don't know it exists. And so I put my head down for the next couple of years to really understand a larger ecosystem that that was obviously um, influencing what we were seeing on the ground and. And then I was introduced to my co-founder, General Salisbury, who is a Vietnam veteran. Uh, and uh, we recognized really that the biggest problem in the space isn't as much a lack of resources as it is this fragmentation of effort. Now, that's not to say that there aren't a lack of resources and gaps. Like, obviously, mental health is a gap in this country. That's not just for our community. Uh, but for the tens of thousands of nonprofits and the thousands of government programs and the DOD and VA spending billions of dollars, bottom line, forward trending outcomes for our community should be better, right? They, they, they should be better for all this effort. And so that's really what drove us to, to start Code of Support. We wanted to start a national organization that was dedicated to integration of effort in what had become a very fragmented veteran support space. So the first thing that we did was we created a case coordination program. And that really grew out of the fact that my phone was blowing up at two or three o'clock in the morning with, you know, people I knew that were just hair on fire. They didn't know what to do. Their husband was suicidal or they were out and now they were homeless. And so I said, we need to create some kind of program to get these people to the help that they need. Because I know what's out there after that's two and a half years of putting my head down. I know these services are out there, but there's no one that really can coordinate them. And so that's what that's what really uh, prompted us to state, start the case coordination program. So that program is staffed with veteran and caregiver peer navigators. So they work with troops, veterans, and families across the country, regardless of where they live, their discharge status, or their era of service. One of the things that I saw is a lot of the nonprofit organizations that have sprung up uh, post 9-11 were only serving post 9-11, which is obviously my generation and very important, but the majority of veterans and families are pre 9-11 and the majority of negative outcomes that we see around suicide and housing and homelessness are still the older veterans. So we didn't want to leave them out as well. So we have a pretty broad eligibility criteria. Um, and so what happens is uh, about 70% of our cases are referred to us from other organizations and agencies 20% from the VA, mostly social workers, uh, and the um, the veteran peer navigator does a very thorough intake, peels back that onion. The person, when they do an application online, might think that they have one problem, like they're about to be evicted, and you peel back that onion. You see all the other things that are factoring into that crisis state, be they mental health, employment, transportation, legal, benefits, whatever. And each one of those have to be addressed. Uh, and obviously there is no one organization that does all of that. And expecting someone who's in crisis to navigate through the system is unrealistic. And so we become that one point of contact. So we build a service plan, we have a service agreement. This is what we can expect, you can expect of us. This is what we expect of you. We expect you to take responsibility for things. We expect you not to, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, 
talk nasty to your, your case coordinator, like, and we will drop people. We have 30 people, constantly 30 people in a queue waiting for us. We don't have enough case coordinators and there's no other national organization that does this. Whenever we have a, a client that's from an area that has a local collaborative that, that we know of, we send them directly there. There's no reason for us to take that case. Let's, for instance, Houston has something called Houston Combined Arms. Uh, we have a great relationship with them. So if we get a client from Houston, we do a warm handoff to Monique down there, and we say, hey, Monique, um, this is this is yours, right? But the fact is the majority of troop spenders' families don't live in an area where there's a local collaborative. And so there has to be some national organization that is, number one, serving as a hub to get those people to those local collaboratives when they exist and when they don't, taking on that case. Uh, and so that's really the case coordination program, and, and I'd like to grow it. If I can get more funding, I'll grow it for every one veteran peer navigator we add. We can help an additional 250 to 300 people a year. So it's, it's you know, the infrastructure's there. We measure well-being with quality of life uh, questions we've customized from RAND. So we're looking at social connectedness. Uh, we're looking at family stability, economic, uh, those types of things. Uh, and then, so we ask those questions in the beginning uh, as a benchmark, and then when we close the case, we ask them again, and then we call out three, six, nine, twelve months to get a sense of great. You know, we leveraged equine therapy for the kid. The wife has peer support. We got them with their benefits. Uh, the guy has mental health. He got a job. Is he actually better off? Is this family actually better off? So we're really trying to get at those. You know, longer-term public health outcome measurements um, through yeah, through those questions. But what we recognized, it was taking our team half their week just to identify the resources. So for every one need we uncovered, we had to reach out to eight organizations to find the one that would not just fit that need, but the eligibility criteria, right? Because just because you have a mental health service doesn't mean your client's going to be eligible for it. Uh, and so we knew there had to be a better way of finding these resources. And we looked at the technology platforms that were already in existence. Um, and there's something I'm sure you're familiar with, National Resource Directory. So NRD, and this was the government's attempt probably about 10, 12 years ago, to basically create a database um, to, to, to help veterans find resources. And it's, it's exactly the, the idea um, that, that we had. But it, for lots of different reasons, it, it has been relatively, it's underperformed. That's <laughs> probably the nicest way to say it. Uh, and it's not because the government doesn't want it to work uh, and the people that run it now are really wonderful people. But bottom line, the government's just not well positioned to vet and verify non-governmental non agencies, right? They're not, they don't want to do it, uh, you know, and, and they really can't in some respects. So, so NRD um, didn't really have a big market, uh, and and then there were a couple other technology platforms that that had tried and and failed, and and so we said, okay, we need to develop something. We need to develop some kind of highly vetted and verified resource navigation platform. So we built a prototype, and I was able to shop that around enough to get a. a a large grant from the Bristol Myers Squibb Foundation, who has now been funding us for the past several years to build this database that we have, we now call Patriot Link. So what Patriot Link is is a cloud-based resource navigation platform uh, that has been populated with vetted and verified resources. So each program that goes in there goes through an initial 90-minute vetting and verification 
Um, and everything is tagged not just by the service or services it provides, but by eligibility. So when a user does a search, they're asked, they're asked questions on the front end, like, are you looking for pre or post 9-11, disability level, branch of service, discharge status, all those things that determine eligibility. And so once you do a search, the only things that come up are going to be things that your client is actually going to qualify for. So it really allows you to do a, a much more targeted search. And then on the back end, we are aggregating all this data, right? So we can see across the country what people are searching for, when they're searching, where they're searching, right? So we'll be able to do, once Patriot Link is widely deployed, we'll be able to do real-time gap analysis and trend identification based on user behavior. For example, let's say, um, you know, 500 uh, uh, soldiers are transitioning out of Fort Carson and 300 of them are going to Austin, Texas, and 80% of them are looking for mental health. Yeah, the VA is going to want to know that, right? So being able to have that real-time information, I think, is going to be a game changer in terms of informing policy and um, funding and program decisions. So we launched uh, publicly June 14th of last year. Uh, we just got another chunk of money from Bristol-Myers Squibb to finish off the development of, of the platform. And our goal really is in the next couple of years to have this widely deployed, used by people that are working with veterans. It's, it's, it's open to troops, veterans, and families as well. There's a basic version that's free, and anybody can go on right now, patriotlink.org. Um, sign up, uh, log in, and start doing searches. But we really developed the platform for organizations and providers that are working with that crisis community. Uh, and so that if you're a mental health provider, we don't expect you to become a, you know, a housing or transportation expert. But we know that if you're working with someone with mental health and, and they're telling you they're having these issues, that if you don't help them get connected to the right resources, you're not going to have much success with the mental health piece of it, right? You've got to help people connect to these other these other um, resources. And so we're just trying to basically, we've done all the work and we keep the data clean, which is a, a huge, huge, you know, lift, right? Making sure that the numbers are right and the, the capacity is still there. And so in the back end, we have constant people cleaning, um, cleaning the, the data and then using technology to help us clean the data and what have you so that the person that's using the platform can really just do a very quick search and get people to where they need to be. So ultimately, there should be a no wrong door because no matter who a veteran calls or, or where they walk in or a family member, um, they should be able to get them to the right place with this system. See, in, in both of those things, um, from my standpoint as a clinical mental health professional, um, where I've been uh, working in this field since 2014, by, by no means a, a, a very long time, uh, but over the last five years, <clears throat> a lot of this has been the challenge. Um, a, a colleague of mine says that uh, it's hard to talk about your inner child when you're not sure where your next meal is coming from. Right. So right. we do have to make sure that the basic needs are met. And, and yes, I can focus on uh, the impact of military service, um, you know, on, on what's going on. Uh, but also we do need to make sure that uh, all the other needs are met. I actually started out uh, when I initially retired, I worked for 18 months for a veteran housing program. And, and I made the switch to mental health because I saw that mental health was the one thing that we couldn't provide uh, locally in our community. And, and so um, being able to shift to that um, 
that space to be able to provide that to, to fill that gap. What I what I'm hearing and what I really appreciate from Code of Support is that uh, you begin with mental health and wellness in mind. The the veteran or the service member or the family member may be coming in to say my my car's broken down or my water heater right. is whatever. And, and whatever problem we're in, or I need a job, or I, you know, am about to lose my house. These are indicators of underlying problems. Not to say that the goal is to get everyone to mental health counseling. Not everyone needs therapy, but understanding yeah. that each of these things are a, an indicator of an underlying problem. And that's what I've seen that some organizations don't think that way. They say, what I do is X. So all a veteran needs is X. And right. if they don't get better after me giving them X, then it's the veteran's problem, not mine. And they, it, perhaps they don't think that specifically, um, but that's really the attitude. And that doesn't sound how sound like how you and how Coda Support Foundation approaches it. Yeah, I mean, we really do look at quality of life in a very holistic way, right? And so if you're really trying to improve a person's quality of life, you have to address these different parts of their life, right? I mean, you just, it's not just mental health. Like I said, if you're a mental health provider, you can be giving someone the best mental health ever, but if they have no car to get to their job, they're not going to have any money and then their mental health is going to suck, right? <laughs> like it's right. just, everything is inter interconnected. And I think that's what we understand because we don't actually provide any of those services other than the peer support and the coordination, Right. Our job is to talk to the person, assess what's going on and and then say, OK, we know we need to get this emergency dealt with. We know we know you need to get you into housing or into mental health or sometimes into inpatient treatment. But then that's part of the service plan. Once that's done, let's address this and then this and then this. Right. You know, and 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 getting people to buy into this to the the process isn't always easy, you know, and so like someone, oh, I just need this money and that's all I need, right? And so we have this, you know, we don't facilitate money for people unless they talk to a financial coach and we can see the budget because there's no point in us leveraging money for you to pay your rent or your mortgage if you have no way to pay it the next month, right? There's just no, and so we don't do that. That's just, that's just throwing money away. Um, and, and there are some people that are unwilling to buy into the process. Uh, and then we're saying, you know, we here here are the resources we've provided to you and good luck. And some of them will come back in five months and say, you're right. I need to, you know, and then some don't. So we do have an expectation that, I mean, these are adults. And so we have an expectation that you will be part of that process and you will have accountability, um, you know, and, and we, and that's the great thing about having veterans or caregivers as the, the case coordinators, because they can have those very honest conversations. Like you need to get your stuff together here. Like we can't, you know, you were in the military, you know, how this works, you know, how accountability works. You have to do something here. You can't just rely on charity for the rest of your life or the government. No, and and I think that is something, and, and you identified it obviously as as the Coda Support Foundation has um, has put it in place. Um, but this is a gap um, that exists. I've I uh, I wrote a piece a while back, um, starving at the feast, right? You know where where there's all of this food available, but there are still veterans falling through the cracks because every organization is trying to manage their 
their own program, but there is no one leading the veteran around to say, oh, you don't like fish? Oh, you have, you know, an allergy to mushrooms? Well, you know, this organization gives you fish without mush, whatever it is, right? You know, but, right, right. but it's, it's, there, that's what's missing is an individual uh, or, or an organization or a group of individuals that will help guide this. And, and if a veteran is not lucky enough or, or fortunate enough to be, um, in Houston with a uh, combined arms, or we have a couple of organizations, one online, uh, and then one, um, uh, brick and mortar here in Colorado Springs that try to uh-huh. do this very same thing. Um, yep. but if they're not in a, you know, if they're not in Chicago or, or a large metropolitan area, if, if they're in Montana or, you know, Western Maryland, uh, then they don't have these resources. And that's where I see that um, that the the Coda Support Foundation can definitely support, and when it comes to Patriot Link, I really like how you you identified because I was thinking the same thing. It sounds like Patriot Link is more for service providers than it is for veterans. Um, but you mentioned that there is a vetting process, and having personally gone through the vetting process with my organization to sign up for Patriot Link, uh, that is exactly accurate. That is very true. I mean, I think it was a a 90 minute conversation that I had had. Um, and it wasn't just my organization signed up on a, a resource, you know, anybody can sign up. And, and that's like you said, there's a problem with a lot of the online repositories. It just becomes another, it's a digital phone book without any verification of whether or not there's, there's actually benefit to the community. Uh, and I think that's another thing that's missing. It definitely sounds like what Coda Support is trying to provide. Yeah, and, you know, we encourage organizations to reach out to us if they want to be in Patriot. There's obviously no cost to be in Patriot Link, um, but not everybody gets in. There's five criteria to get into Patriot Link. The first one is you have to provide some kind of direct service, right? There's a lots of organizations out there doing advocacy and doing other things that are great, but that aren't a good fit for Patriot Link because this is really about getting people to resources that they can leverage. So you have to provide a direct service. You have to be fiscally transparent and financially responsible. So we're looking at 990s, making sure that there's nothing crazy going on there. Uh, you have to provide a cost-free service or an opportunity. Uh, you have to indicate when we do that phone call, you have to indicate you have capacity. If you tell us, look, we can't even handle the amount of veterans we have now, we'll put you in, but we'll keep you dark as a non-searchable, call you back in six months to see if you have more capacity. And the last thing is you have to be responsive. So we go out, once we profile the organization, we do the research, we find out you know, as much as we can online, and then we build the profile and add the services and the eligibility criteria, but then we actually have to talk to you, right? And so if you don't get back to us, we assume that you're not going to get back to the provider using the tool and you don't go in. So those are the criteria to get in. And then when you're in the, the platform and when people are using the platform, there's a rating system. So so it's not like Code of Support is saying whether you're good or bad. We're saying that you meet our criteria, uh, and then the field who uses the platform will decide, you know, how they're going to rate. And, and then you'll see that coming just from basically crowdsourcing. Uh, but but we're just saying that you have to be, um, you know, fiscally transparent uh, and responsive and have capacity um, and actually do what you say that you're doing. So. So, yeah, I mean, it's, 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 listen, we know it's a huge lift. I mean, we have been conceptualizing it for five years. We've been building it for three and a half years. 
Um, you know, I've been in many rooms and been, you know, lots of tough questions and, and we piloted it for a year and a half. And so we were getting feedback on the system as we're building it and we're continuing to add features to it. Uh, and so it's all been driven, as I said, by first our case coordination team. They were the ones that drove the development of this platform. And it continues to be driven by its actual users and its customers, by the organizations and the agencies that are using it. Like, we will manage this system, we will be accountable and own it, but we didn't build it for code of support. I, you know, I'm not spending two and a half million dollars to build a technology platform for our team. <laughs> you know, we built it for everybody else. Uh, you know, there, but we, it, but this, we see this as the platform that if the space adopts it and they use it, it will be better and better the more people use it and the more people that give us feedback and the more data that we get, right? You know, we're talking to the VA about potentially getting it upstream in the transition process, right? Can you imagine you have 250 transitioning veterans every year if they all sign into Patriot Link, start looking for resources where they're actually going, right? Because most of the things, if I mean, so if you're going out of Fort Carson and you happen to be staying in uh, Colorado Springs or Colorado, you've got a lot of options. Uh, I can't remember what his name is, but the Mount Carmel, the Bob, he's got a fantastic, uh, fantastic collaborative um, and a brick and mortar. But, you know, the majority of people who get out don't stay, right? They go to wherever it is they're going to get a job or where their family is or what have you. And so we want to make sure those people get connected to whether it's a local collaborative where they're going or just services and, and what have you. Um, and so, again, if we can get lots of people on the platform, lots of organizations and agencies using it, and we can get these relationships with these federal agencies, um, then it, it can be a game changer. And and in the end, you know, as I wrap up this really long conversation of me talking a lot, um, when I was just, quote unquote, a wife, and I was talking about those things, and I, I was talking about systemic changes that needed to be made, and it's really no different now. I mean, I still, I, I, I knew way back then that there had to be some big structural changes made in order to really address, you know, the, the challenges that we were seeing. And, and I think it's, I, I have that same thought process today. No, that's, uh, that's absolutely correct. And, and, uh, and again, this is one of the, the challenges that all of the efforts that you're doing and, um, you know, joining forces and, and, and even, you know, the, the big six and now the, the next generation or whatever we call them that, that everyone is trying to get the word out, um, about their organization because everyone wants to help veterans and their families, right? I mean, this is, if, if you don't want to, if you don't want to help veterans, then, then there's, you know, perhaps something wrong with you. Uh, but just getting the word out and, and, and trying to get above the noise, um, that even though, as you had mentioned, Mount Carmel, I've, uh, my organization has worked with Mount Carmel in the past. We continue to, uh, we have another organization in town, the Peak Military Care Network that, that does that, that I'm not sure if they know about you because, and not to say that I've never heard about you, but I'm fairly connected in my community and I hadn't realized until we started talking and, and I started looking into it, everything that CODA support was doing. And so that's a challenge in getting the word out. And, and hopefully yeah. this is a, this is a step in the right direction to be able to do some of that. 
Yep, absolutely. And that's what, you know, when, like most nonprofits, we don't have a huge marketing budget. Um, and so we rely on our, our partnerships. And it has helped with PatriotLink because we're talking to thousands of organizations in order to vet and verify them. And as we're doing that, we're letting them know what we do. And, you know, if you have clients that, that require a, a more critical coordination process than, than you're able to do, then pass them up to us and, and we do the same thing and pass people down to them. So I think that within a year or so, um, Patriot Link and Code of Support will be kind of a much more known entity. And, and what I see is if, if a troop veteran or family member only knows one organization and one name, and it's us, we can get them to the Mount Carmel's and the Peaks and the Houston Combined Arms and the AWP sites and the America Serve sites and the Mission United sites. And like we know where they all are. That's our job, right? You know, so if, if, if we can become kind of that national coordination center, being the, the hub that passes down to the other hubs that are local and then taking the clients that don't have access to those hubs. That's, that's kind of the way I see it going forward. If we can, if we can get the, the funding we need to grow our program enough um, for case coordination, and then it's our responsibility to get people to where they need to go. And not just community-based resources, of course, the VA um, and HHS and DOD and all those as well. You know, and that's uh, that's exactly what's needed. We all see that that's what's needed, and and we don't have the capacity to to solve every problem for every veteran uh, service member of their families. Um, I, I had a mentor one time that says, you know, with all of the problems or all the challenges that veterans face after they leave the military, no one organization is going to be able to do it all. Um, you know, like the Department of Veterans Affairs, as great as they are at what they do, um, it's just the, the the sheer number is overwhelming. Uh, but what my uh, what my mentor said is we need an agency of agencies. And that right. sounds like what what CODA supports trying to do. And uh, and I, for one, as a provider, uh, appreciate that. And uh, and I'm glad that we were able to to have a conversation and highlight what you're doing. So if somebody wanted to um, reach out, uh, find out more about you, Code of Support, um, you have a couple of different websites. So how can they find you online? I think, you know, if they want to learn more about Code of Support, uh, the best thing to do is codeofsupport.org. And then we have all the programs on there. You can access Patriot Link from that. You can access case coordination. If you are listening and you're a troop veteran or family member that needs help, just go to the website, um, click the Get Help button. Uh, you fill out an application, and then you'll get an assigned a veteran or caregiver peer navigator. If you're an organization that is interested in um, in learning more about Patriot Link, whether it's using it, um, being in it, both, again, you can go to the website, go to the Patriot Link page, and then there's the point of contact that you'd be uh, reaching out to as well. Yeah, no, this is great. Christy, I really appreciate uh, what you're doing, uh, very specifically what you and your team are doing with CODA Support. I also appreciate you coming on the show today. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed the conversation and, and the opportunity, and, and thank you for what you're doing. Um, as you've as you said a couple times today, no one can do this alone. This has to be a team effort, um, and so you're you're really doing a good job of helping us get the word out. Well, if we all uh, we all pick up a bucket of water, we'll be able to put the fire out. Amen. <laughs> Thank you very much. All right, Dwayne. Take care.
You're listening to Headspace and Timing, where we're trying to change the way that we think and talk about veteran mental health. Christy's a great example of someone who had something important to say and wasn't afraid to say it. You may look at all the great things she's done, but she started out the same way as the rest of us, frustrated, heartbroken, and at a loss of what to do. Margaret Mead said, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. If you think you don't have influence, if you think that your voice is not loud enough to make an impact, you're wrong. And Christie's story proves that. You can see what Christie has accomplished with CODA's support by refusing to stay quiet. She certainly agrees with the fact that there's more that needs to be done and helped build the CODA Support Foundation to fill critical gaps in services. She brought up many excellent points, but one that I want to leave you with is this. There are a lot of organizations that are providing services, but few that are helping veterans navigate those services. When you get to a new installation or a new unit, you have somebody show you the ropes, but we don't have that in post-military life. That's what the Code of Support Foundation is trying to do, and hopefully you get a chance to check them out. Thanks for taking the time to check us out. If you want to find the show notes and everything that Christy is doing, go to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash HST093. While you're there, share the link with somebody you think may enjoy it. One of the challenges in changing the way that we think and talk about veteran mental health is spreading the word. You can subscribe in a bunch of different podcast players like iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and many others. Check everywhere you can hear us at veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash platforms. If the player you use to listen to podcasts isn't there, let me know and I'll figure out how to get on it. While you're checking it out, consider dropping a rating or review on the show. It helps for the show to rank higher in searches. I'd like to thank longtime listener and supporter of the show, Nelson Ormsby. Nelson isn't a veteran, but he's a proud son and father of veterans, and his appreciation for what we're doing is one of the things that keeps us going. It'd be great if you could tell us how we're doing, too. Leave a review on any platform, and it'll help increase the visibility of the show. One more thing. Just as a reminder that the guests and information in this show are for educational purposes only and are not meant to be considered professional advice. Well, I'm a practicing therapist. I'm not your therapist. If something you've heard makes you think you could talk to somebody, then reach out and do so. I'd like to thank Doc Todd for giving us permission to use his track, Not Alone, from his album Combat Medicine. Doc's trying to bring the discussion about veteran mental health out of the darkness and into the light, and you can see all of his work at therealdoctod.com. Make sure to join us next week for another great episode, and until then, remember veterans, you're not alone, ever. The struggle is real, found a feast and lost a soul Eventually my drinking, it got out of control There in darkness I roam, struggling to find home See suddenly death didn't feel so alone 22 a day, destination unknown It could have been avoided if you picked up the phone But now you're gone, so I guess all we get is the tone Nothing but bone weeds, overgrown, pushing up stones I've triumphed over enemies, co-created enemies Broke out facilities that tried to put an end to me R.I.P. I'd rather grind in tranquility Authentic Tennessee, embrace my ability Oh, 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 oh,
realize Take those bottles out, dog, and pour them in the sink Take the needles out your arm and the gun away from your forehead It's time, man, you've been through enough pain, stand up It's time to stand back up All my veterans, man, Army, Marine Corps, Navy, Air Force, Coast Guard Get up, you know Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes.